chapter 18 today, and we're going to start in verse 16. If you have your Bibles, you better, you better read with me today. Make sure what I'm saying is from the book. The Bible says, then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. So uh, let me just fill in the blank here. Three people came to Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of Genesis chapter 18. Two of them were angels. One of them was, a, was the Lord, a Christophany. I've explained to you what a Christophany is, physical manifestation of Christ before the incarnation. So two of them now are heading towards Sodom, and the Lord is there with Abraham. Verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing since Abraham surely shall surely become a great, great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Check this out. Super important verse. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose... There were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, check this out, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, I who am but dust and ashes have, spoke, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous, would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, he does the math for Abraham. <laughs> if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again. And he said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he's totally haggling with God. Okay, if you go to Israel with me and we go to the old city, this is exactly what happens there all the time. It is constant haggling. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said... I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. Like, you know, if you're not careful, you read it like, okay, would you just shut your mouth? Okay, if, if there are 10 there, I won't destroy it. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And Father, we're thankful for this portion of Scripture today, and sincerely, God, before you, we can say there is so much, there is so much to learn and so much to glean, and yet I know 
that there is one particular thing that you have for us. God, may your word not fall to the ground. God, may it strike the target within our hearts. God, that, that we would not be thinking this is a great message for somebody else, but God, we would take what you have to speak to us today and that we would never be the same because of it. God, we pray that you would answer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> How many of you guys have seen the movie Castaway? All right, we have definitely a, a, a hipper group of people here at the second service than the first. Not that watching Castaway makes you hip, but uh, you know that movie. That movie kind of left left an impression on me, and you know it's one of those movies where it is totally the worst case scenario. I mean, it is the worst possible thing that could happen to an individual, from my point of view. Like, beginning with the broken relationship, but then also the whole scene on the airplane. You know, if you fly a lot, that's like the last thing that you want to have happen. And then worse than that is that the airplane crashes and you're literally lost at sea. You know, that, that for me is one thing that... I would just hate to have happen. In the middle of the sea, little feet dangling in the water, sharks, you know what I'm talking about? Bad scene. And then not just that, but then he gets stranded on a deserted island, and all that he has are eight ice skates, VHS tapes, and a volleyball. I mean, that's messed up, right? He's on a stranded island, and he's got ice skates, he's got VHS tapes, and he's got a volleyball um, it provoked me to kind of do a little research on what you absolutely have to have if you get stranded on a deserted island. And, you know, there were, it's, it's just so interesting. There are so many different responses to this. I don't know what you guys would say. Yes, you know, somebody else said the Bible. And it's like, I got to close in prayer now because, I mean, that is a great answer. And that's the right answer. But, you know, a lot of people said things like uh, a fishing net. Some people said some pretty absurd things like suntan lotion. Uh, you know, it's like, but I'm telling you, everyone across the board, everyone across the board said the number one thing that they would need to have uh, would be a knife. Like, you would not want to be on a deserted island without a knife. It's an absolute. And I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought, what if somebody said to me, Pastor, this, this year, what is the one thing that our church cannot do without? What is the one thing that we would absolutely 100% have to have? God. God, that's right. Somebody said the Bible earlier, prayer. All right, I know there, there are a lot of uh, answers to this. Let me just say that as Christians, we know we have God, right? And I'm going to say, like, we know this year we have the word. The thing for me is prayer, the thing for me is prayer. What is the one thing that we can't do without this year? I think that is prayer. You know, the church has the power to move heaven and earth. Do you believe that today? The church has the power to move heaven and earth. Not through its programs, not through its pastors, not through its financial portfolio, but through prayer. And the reason I want to say to you today that if we were bo to boil it down to one thing, and the one thing would be prayer, the reason I say that is because if you have prayer, you have everything else. Like, Are we connecting today, people? If you have prayer, you have everything else. Like, if we are praying, if we are, we are really seeking the face of God, our pastors will be on fire. If we are really praying and seeking the face of God, our programs will be fruitful. 
If we are really praying and seeking the face of God, God will supply all our need according to his glory in Christ Jesus. If we really pray, if we really seek the face of God, if we really depend upon him. Genesis chapter 18 is filled with um, just an amazing contrast. Like I want to encourage you guys later, not right now, but later I want you to read verses 1 to 15. And in verses 1 to 15, this is what you discover. Abraham is hanging out with Sarah. Three people roll in uh, to their little area. They recognize that these are not just three nomads or three people, but that these are celestial, heavenly beings. Two are an angel, and one is the Lord. And he knows the one to be the Lord. And in that dialogue, what happens is the Lord finally gives to Abraham and Sarah the win of the fulfillment of the promise. He finally says to them, hey, listen, this time next year, Sarah is going to be with child. And, you know, they had gotten so old that the response of Sarah, we'll talk about this next week, but the response of Sarah was to laugh. I mean, and this is my paraphrase, I say it all the time, but she's like, have you looked at my man? <laughs> right? Have you, looked at, have you looked at him lately? Like, this is just not going to happen. But finally, like you can imagine, and think about this. At the onset of the promise, God never said to Abraham and Sarah when he was going to fulfill it. And they've been walking with God for 24 years, not knowing, not having a time frame. You know, God will do that in our lives, and he has the right to do it. There are things that God will promise, and he will not give us the timeline to it. And so day by day, we trust him as time goes on. Finally, what happens is God in this particular moment says, this time next year, he gives the win. The fulfillment of the promise is coming. And I know for Sarah and for Abraham, it was total elation, right? This was the thing that they'd been waiting for. They were going to experience the fulfillment of the promise. And then in contrast to that, God says to Abraham what we just read. I mean, these would have been heavy, hard words for Abraham to hear, that God was going to see if, in fact, the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, these twin cities, was so great that it would ultimately provoke him uh, in a micro-expression of his wrath. And for Abraham, uh, that was a difficult thing to hear because we're going to learn, yeah, you know what, he did care for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but also his nephew and his whole family were living there. And so he's got these two wild, wildly contrasting things, right? I mean, and this is sometimes what our days are like. Sometimes we start the day and we're filled with the blessings of God and it's just so amazing. And then all of a sudden we get this heavy stuff that we have to deal with. And we're kind of like Abraham, we're torn between these two things. I am so thankful for Abraham's response. I'm, I'm thankful Abraham wasn't like the average Christian. I'm thankful Abraham wasn't like the average Christian. You know what I'm talking about? Too blessed to care about lost people suffering the wrath of God. Too blessed. You know, in this moment he could have said, well, you know what, God, I've got my blessing. I've got my promise. God, you've given me the win. I'm good to go. And you know, by the way, I think they all deserve it. So have, have at it, God. Have at it, God. Have your way. Let your wrath flow because I'm just, I'm just as blessed as I possibly could be. You know, if you don't care about unsaved people being saved, then you probably don't know Jesus. If you don't care about unsaved people being saved, then you probably don't know Jesus because you, you know how this works, right? You, you're born again. You recognize and you realize for the very first time this is a spiritual epiphany. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. You were living in deception. You didn't see it before. 
But God in his grace has enlightened your eyes of understanding. And you've recognized your need for someone to stand between you and God. And you know that that person is Jesus. And you put your trust and faith in him. And you're born again and you're rescued from hell. And you know when that happens in your life, you can't but help to want that for other people. You can't but want to help that for other people. For you, it's not just enough to go through life and, and to just enjoy the blessings of God. No, there's something so much more important happening than that. You know, I think this is an amazing dialogue between God and Abraham, and it's fascinating. You know, there are so many different ways that we can look at this particular story. One thing I will tell you for sure is that God was getting Abraham's heart in shape. God was getting Abraham's heart in shape. God was working something in Abraham, and we know that to be the case because, because God himself says it. Check out verse 17 today. God, God explains why he's cluing Abraham in. He says this, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Check this out. For I have known him. Why? In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In other words, let, let me just say it like this. God is saying to Abraham, hey, listen, it's not just about the blessings in your life. It's not just about you experiencing promises. The fulfillment of my promises because, Abraham, I'm doing something more. What am I doing? I'm transforming you. It's not just about what I'm doing through you. And, I, you know, I hesitate to say this because sometimes this sounds so rhetorical, like an obvious thing to say, but I think it, it must be said. Abraham, it's not just what I'm doing through you. It's what I'm doing in you. It's what I'm doing in you. It's not just the blessings that I give you. It's the real blessing of your heart being shaped in such a way that you bear my image. Like this is the whole restoration of the brokenness of Eden. You remember the purpose of covenant is that we as people would be restored as image bearers, that we would bear the heart of God, that we would reflect who in fact he is. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, and so what is God doing here? Because if you're not careful, you'll look at this and you'll think, wow, Abraham really was the merciful one and he's cajoling God and, and, you know, he's bargaining with God because God doesn't really care about the lost and God is just all concerned with wrath and that is not what's going on. That is not what's going on. God doesn't tell Abraham just so that Abraham can just have an idea. God is transforming and shaping his heart. God knows exactly what he's going to do. God knows exactly how he's going to fulfill his purposes. But in this process, it is a journey to shape the heart of this man who would be the patriarch of the faith. You know, let me just paraphrase what God says uh, to Abraham about the purpose of cluing him in. He says, I've told you because I want you to raise your children to love me. Abraham, I've told you because I want you to live a life that pleases me in doing what's right and treating other people the right way. Abraham, I've clued you in. I've incorporated you into my divine purpose so that my promises could be fulfilled in your life. Abraham is learning that God is righteous. Abraham is learning that God is just. Abraham is learning that God is a God of mercy Abraham is learning to intercede. And when God shapes your heart, he shapes your purpose. When God gets a hold of your heart, 
You know what this is like. When God gets a hold of your heart, all of a sudden, the, the, the nature of your dreams and ambitions and, di- and desires totally change because fundamentally, they're not oriented around that self-centered, self-seeking, me-first heart. They're now oriented around God and what matters to the heart of God. God is going to bring this to bear in Abraham's life in a really challenging situation. Uh, and you guys know Sodom and Gomorrah has been kind of memorialized as like the most miserable of all cities right next to Las Vegas, <laughs> right? And I get this all the time. I get this all the time. You know, I'll be hanging out at a, you know, a pastor's conference or, you know, a pastor's uh, leadership meeting some, somewhere else in the country and we go around in a circle and... And it's like, yeah, someone says, I'm from Florida, and I minister in, in Tallahassee, and yeah, I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I'm like, well, I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada, and you know, I get that look immediately, like, oh, 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 Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and then sometimes people are like that rude, you know, hey, what's it like living in Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm like, what's it like getting a backhand from me, boy? <laughs> but... But I don't do that because God has shaped my heart, right? He's shaped my heart. I want to, but I say no. I want to, but I say no. I'm just saying like this city, this, these cities, they were, they were twin cities. They were sister cities. And they were decadent even in the eyes of the decadent culture around them. So historically what we know is that even the other cities in Canaan, the other cultures, as decadent as they were, and they were they were unbelievably immoral. You know, there were, there were practices uh, in these particular cities where sexual immorality was rampant. It was part of their worship of their false gods. They would take their newborn babies and they would offer them as burnt sacrifices to their false gods and goddesses. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Come back for that on Sunday morning. I know that sounds really appealing. But, but Sodom and Gomorrah were like, I mean, it was the extreme. Even the ungodly cultures around Sodom and Gomorrah recognized these two cities as the extreme of immorality, as the extreme of decadence. And look, it was so intense that God himself says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grave. Like, it, it had become so great, not that God didn't know, because God is omniscient, we know that, but it had crossed a threshold where it had reached the ears and the heart of God and provoked him to response. The word outcry here is also used back in the story of Cain and Abel. You remember the story when God confronts Cain, Cain's murdered Abel, and God is trying to elicit a, a confession out of Cain. And he's like, hey, what's happened to your brother? And Cain's sassy response, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, his blood cries out to me from the ground. His blood cries out to me from the ge- ground. It has reached my ears. It's reached my heart. Same word. God, uh, the Bible uses this word again when the children of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. And collectively, it has become so arduous and so difficult. The Bible says that the children of Israel cried out to God and that God heard their prayers and God responded, ultimately we know, in raising up a redeemer. Listen, in, in other words, uh, this sin was so extreme. God himself said it was sincerely grave. It was so extreme. It was provoking him to action. Now people say, well, what really was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And, and thankfully, you know, we don't have to leave it to opinion. The scripture says it 
for itself. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, the Bible says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom, she and her daughter. So Sodom and the twin city, Gomorrah, had, here's a list, pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination. That specifically is referring to sexual sin. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit, which God, of course, has the right to do. Jude, in Jude 7, Jude verse 7, the Bible says, In Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner, Jude is talking about angels who had left their first estate. They had sinned against God. They were being held uh, for a time until the judgment came. And, and the scripture likens these angels to these two cities, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality. So let me just list this out. What were the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? Pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Uh, they didn't take care of the impoverished or those who were in need around them. The scripture says they didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they committed abomination. There was an excess of sexual sin, and they were haughty about it. They were prideful about it. They boasted about it. There was no guilt. There was no shame over what they had done against the Lord. Now listen, don't get me wrong. I love my country, but that sounds like a description of America. Like, not, not just Las Vegas, but these are sins that we see in our own country. And listen, what does, what does Abraham do? I just want to say to you, I think he does the craziest thing. He does the craziest thing. Abraham prays. Abraham intercedes. Abraham could have said, well, you know what? You're right, God. And Sodom and Gomorrah, they're all messed up. So how about we organize an anti-Sodom and Gomorrah action committee, Right? <laughs> We'll get a group of people together. I'll get these kings aligned together. And, you know, we'll, we'll handle this. We'll handle this in our own strength. Or, or, listen, I think maybe Abraham could have been in a place where, like, you know, his sense of self-righteous justice was aroused. You know, like, kind of in a way where he said, you know what? Absolutely, God, they are such sinners. And they're so deserving of your justice. Man, let the fire fall from heaven and let it fall hot. Let it fall hot. Because these people, if anyone deserves your wrath, it's these people. I think, I think we, could, we could see, we can imagine Abraham doing that, and yet he doesn't do either of those things. What does he do? He intercedes. He prays. His heart is moved. Why is Abraham's heart moved with mercy? Because he himself had received the mercy of God. Listen, when you receive the mercy of God, what you want to do is you want to distribute that mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall. Okay. There's like five different answers there. There were ten at the first service. So you guys are a little, probably a little more biblical. But you check that out for yourself later on. When you receive the mercy of God, you know. You know that you, what you want to extend to others is his mercy. This was what Abraham had learned in his own failure in his own mistake, what, what had he received from God when he had fallen, when he had made the wrong decisions? And let me tell you, he was not a perfect patriarch. He had his mistakes too. But when he made his mistakes and turned his heart to God, 
he received the mercy of God. I think at the root of Abraham's intercession really is that he had discovered that God was a merciful God. And because God was merciful to him, he wanted to be merciful to others. So, so listen, let, let's just like bring this into the moment because we're living in a crazy moment right now. We're living in a crazy moment right now. And I think for some of us, you know, in this, in this moment, we can, we can think or even say to God, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? Not in an accusatory way, but in a way where it's like, God, I just, what is going on? You know, I mean, you get to the point where you feel like you're on the, the tail end of a pandemic, you know, where, where maybe, hey, maybe, maybe this is, in fact, the last, the last, you know, phase that we're going to go through, the last cycle of it really impacting our community and our culture. And then all of a sudden, right, all of a sudden this week, it, it feels like everybody in the world is sick. Everybody in the world is sick, and everything's coming to a grinding halt. And I think in some ways it's like, God, what is it that you are doing? And if you guys remember two years ago, this is how we started our journey together uh, in this pandemic. This is what we said. We said, hey, we don't want to miss what it is that God has for us. That's what we started with. It was like, do you remember that? God, we don't know what's going on. We don't understand it. We can't explain it. We don't know where it's going from here. One thing we know for sure is we don't want to miss what you have for us. And I think two years down the road, it's, you know, now it's like, okay, God, what, this doesn't seem to be ending. So God, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you have to communicate to us? And I think, listen, God can multitask. Thank God, God can multitask. You know, there are a thousand things that God is doing. There are a hundred thousand things that God is doing. One thing I know for sure that God is desiring to teach us is he's desiring to teach his people how to pray. He's desiring to teach us how to pray. Listen, if there's anything that we should have learned over the last two years, it's that we need to lean into God in prayer. Because I'll tell you today, you can't trust the media Yeah, you guys clap at the craziest stuff. You can't trust politicians. <laughs> we have a clap meter right now. Um, hey, you can't trust scientists. You can't, you're like, you can't, you can't trust scientists, right? And let me just say this, that science, science is the new religion of our era, and scientists are the new religious leaders of our era. Science is deemed to be absolute truth. And the fact is there's only one absolute truth, and that's the word of God. That, that is just the way it is. Now, now, let me just say this, because I guarantee someone will like cut a clip out of that and say, hey, another church that doesn't believe in science. And, and I just want to say to you, I love, I love the pursuit of God through science. I love it. I love finding new discoveries. Because everything that we discover from a scientific point of view gives glory to God as the, as the ultimate creator. But you know, you can't really trust the media, you can't trust politicians, you can't trust scientists, but, but church, you can trust God. You can trust God. And the greatest way that we demonstrate our trust in God is through prayer. I, I'm saying to you today that your prayer life is a direct reflection of the depth of your trust in God. 
Little prayer life, little trust in God. Deep growing prayer life, because no one's arrived in prayer. Deep growing prayer life reflects a heart that really trusts the Lord. Praying doesn't change God's heart, it gives us his heart. It gives us his heart. You know, these last two years have been a journey, but the process should include, God, I don't understand what's going on, and I'm going to handle it as you guide me and direct me, but I'm going to really lean into prayer. I'm going to stay close to you so that everything that's on your heart might be imparted to my heart. The last thing I want to do is be caught up and consumed in a whole bunch of things that don't matter or just an expression of man's way of solving issues. God, I want you to speak to me so that in this difficult, challenging I hate to use the word. I won't use it. Never mind. You want to know what it is? Too bad. But it's it's just a word that's used over and over again. You know, in this particular time, God, I just want to, I want to come out of this time having my heart look more like your heart. So listen, Abraham's prayer is amazing. And there are four things that we're going to learn today in and through this prayer. Uh, If you're taking notes, write these four things down. If you're not a note taker, write these four things down. All right. The first thing that we discover about Abraham's prayer to God is it's heaven first, then earth. It's heaven first, then earth. I love this. I know it's going to sound so simple to you, but the Bible says that Abraham stood before the Lord. He stood before the Lord. In other words, Abraham knew it was, knew who it was that he was standing before. He knew he was standing before God. When you and I pray, it's not like we're just standing before anybody. We are standing before God himself. We're standing before the omnipotent one. We are standing before the almighty one. We are standing before the one who is unparalleled and supreme in all of his ways. And not only is he the strongest and the mightiest, but he is the one who is loving and merciful and gracious and righteous and just When we pray, we stand in the presence of God. We stand in the presence of God as his sons and daughters, but nevertheless, we know who he is, and we know who we are. And we pray what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In that model prayer, one of the things that he taught them to pray is this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Check that out. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. So listen, in other words, to see prayer manifested here on this earth, it has to be settled in heaven first. It has to be settled in heaven first. It has to be settled in the heart of God. It has to become a reality in the heavenly places. And I'm saying to you today, when your prayer is settled in the heart of God, you can consider it to be done. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about those times in prayer where you've been tenacious, where you're digging in, where you've been persistent to the extent in your communion with God, where you know because the Spirit of God has said to your spirit, it is done. It is done. You know, I was reading this week in my devotional time from the book of Isaiah, something stuck out, stuck, it stuck out, which is like stood out, but it's not stood out, it's stuck out. It's a new word in the dictionary. It's in the urban dictionary. It means something. But this stood out to me. You know, God says this, search from the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail, for my mouth has commanded it. 
My mouth has commanded it, and I thought, God, this is what we need. We need to pray and seek your face. We need to pray according to your purposes, and it needs to be so settled in your heart that you are the one who commands it by your mouth. Because, God, when you command it by your mouth, there is nothing that can stop it. God, how many things in our lives are really a function of just our own efforts? How many things in our lives are just us relying on ourselves, our ability to influence, the gifts that we perceive ourselves to have, you know, the resources that God has blessed us with. And we may be in some sense acknowledging them in, in prayer, but we're not really leaning into the heart of God and praying consistently and asking these things that we're, at, that we're asking for to be settled in the heart of the Father so he commands it from heaven and it's manifested here on earth. You know, I was at, I'd mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago. Rachel and I went to Kay Smith's memorial service. And, you know, Kay was Pastor Chuck's wife. The whole Calvary Chapel movement really uh, was a function, not just of them, but of their ministry. And, you know, Calvary Chapel is not, Calvary Chapel did not happen just because we teach the Bible verse by verse. I, ho I hope you understand that. There's so much more to the story, and really the epicenter of the Great Awakening, this revival, this Jesus people movement was prayer. It was because of prayer. It was because, you know, in large part, Kay Smith had a burden on her heart for stinky, smelly hippies, right? This, this subgroup in the culture that were totally disregarded, that were considered to have absolutely no value. Her heart was burdened for these people. And you know, when they would go to the beach, you know, and they would look at the hippies, Chuck, and he says this, Chuck on the one hand would say, you know, they need to get a haircut, they need to get a driver's license, they need to take a shower, and they need to get a job. And then he'd look over at his wife and she literally would be weeping. You know, her heart broken over the lost condition. So much of what happened in the 60s and 70s was a function of her prayer life. You know, Greg Laurie spoke at her memorial service, and, you know, Greg didn't realize, he connected some dots much later on, but he didn't realize that, you know, Kay, every day, Kay had mentioned this, she every day would be praying for this, this small group of hippies that would pass her house on the way on their way to high school, and every day she'd see this group of uh, hippies and she would pray for them. Greg later on realized that he was in that group, that he was part of that group that would walk past her house, not realizing that as he did, there was a woman there that was praying that God would work in his life and transform and change him. And listen, God did exactly that. It was settled in the heart of the Father and it was, was manifested in the life of a person. Awakenings and revival, they start in prayer. You know, a number of years ago, we were in Paris, and we were with a missions organization. You think Vegas is hard to reach. Paris is, is really difficult to reach. And, you know, this was what they encouraged us to be a part of. They said, listen, it's a really hard city to reach, and no one wants to come here. So what we're doing is every day at 10.02 a.m., we are praying Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And... We're asking the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest because the fields are white to the harvest. And so we, we did that as a church. You know, we, I came back from that and said, hey, guys, every day at 10.02, we're going to pray that God sends laborers into Paris and, 
and the staff prayed that, and I found out just about 18 months ago that there is a mighty work of God's Holy Spirit happening in Paris right now, especially, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, especially among the gypsies, you know, a group of people that are totally disregarded and considered without value. And, you know, I want to encourage us as a church to do something, all right? I want to encourage us to pray Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, so every day, either at 5.14 a.m. or 5.14 p.m., as a church, our heart is for an awakening. We want to see an awakening. What is an awakening? Well, the Bible says, therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Every day, listen, if we as a church pray to God, God, we ask that you would awaken the lost that you would cause their eyes to see that the veil that the God of this age has blinded them with would be torn in two, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and the light of the glory of the gospel would fill their hearts. God, we're praying for that. And God, we're praying for your people, your church, your sons and daughters who are sleeping. God, awaken us. You know, let's commit. And I'm not saying you have to make a 30-minute prayer out of this. It, it might just be 60 seconds. It might be just the simplicity of that prayer, but I'm saying to you, when we collectively pray this together, every single day, a couple walked out, and, and uh, she, he said, Pastor, she's got the AM, I've got the PM. You know, we're, we're going to be praying. I'm saying to you, when it's established in heaven, we'll see it manifested on earth. The second thing about Abraham was, there was absolute confidence in his prayer because he knew who God was. There was absolute confidence in his prayer because he knew who God was. You say, well, how do we know that? Because he says in verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Like, he didn't say, hey, you know what, God, this is kind of arbitrary. This is my opinion. I'm not sure if this is right or wrong. He says, no, God, I've learned you. I've learned you. I know who you are. I can ask this because I know that this is true about you. God, you will always do the right thing. You will always do the right thing. You know, sometimes in prayer, it's like, well, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray. Abraham did not have the canon of Scripture. He had a small, limited revelation of God. You and I should know what to pray because we have the revelation of the Father through the Son, through Jesus Christ. In other words, we know that we know everything we need to know about God because we have the Son, if you want to know what the purpose of the Father is, look to Jesus. If you want to know what you ought to be praying, then grow in your relationship with him. I mean, this is an amazing thing that Jesus says we have the opportunity to do. We have the opportunity to pray as the people of God, and when we pray in his name, he will do it. What does it mean to pray in his name? You know, this is like a common joke among pastors and we have to take what we can get because our jokes are really stupid. But, you know, sometimes it's like, sometimes when we think of praying in his name, it's kind of like an equation, right? If I just, it doesn't matter what I say in front of it, but if I just end the prayer with, in Jesus' name, right? And put a little fire into it, a little, a little passion, because if you're passionate about saying it, then the probability increases that God is going to answer it. So it's like, you know, Lord, I, I want the Mercedes, and God, I want the, I want the new house, and this is where I want the new house, and I need some new clothes, uh, in Jesus' name, right? In Jesus' name. It is because we, it's like a punctuation mark, and because we've wrapped up the prayer with that little equation, somehow we think that, that because we've done that, that God is going to answer. And when Jesus says, 
that we should pray in his name, you of course know that's not, that is not what he meant. The Bible says this, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Can you imagine that? Because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, this is the big three. Number one, we know who he is. We know who he is. So when we pray, we know his character. We know his attributes. We know that he loves mercy. We know those things that are pleasing to him. We also know, number two, what he wants. We know what his divine purpose is. We know what he is after. And number three, we are ultimately praying that he would answer prayer not for our glory, not just for our personal happiness, but most importantly for his, for his glory. We want to see him glorified. And so, listen, we pray like this, Lord, I know who you are. I know, I know what matters to you. I know what it is that you want to accomplish. I know what you want to execute in this short time that you've given to us here on this planet. And so I'm going to ask these things according to that because I know what your word says, and I'm going to do so so that you would be glorified, so that you would be magnified, so that people would see how great how awesome of a God you are, and that they would come to living trust and faith in Jesus, your son. That is what it means to pray in his name. And when you and I pray like that, when you and I pray like that, listen, we don't leave our prayer time going, well, you know, I, I have no idea how that's going to roll. We know because we've had the word of God hidden in our hearts. We're walking with him and we've prayed according to his word. The third thing I want to encourage you with, which is pretty obvious, from Abraham's life is be pushy but humble. <laughs> be pushy but humble. You know, I mean, Abraham is anything but passive, right? I mean, he's, he's pushy. He's, he is uh, incessant. He is persistent. He is tenacious. He just won't say no. I mean, he could have stopped at 45 after God did the math for him. But he did not do that. I mean, it was just like one thing literally after another and I want to encourage you in your prayer life, don't be passive in prayer. Don't be passive in prayer. Hey, God, you know, you're going to do whatever you want to anyway, so in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> no. No. God, you know, I just pray that the earth would keep revolving around the sun and, and, you know, that my day would be nice. Well, that's a nice prayer, but, you know, come on. God's looking for a little fire, church. God is looking for a little passion. God is looking for these things that matter to him to matter to you. God wants you to have a burden for things. When you're coming to him in prayer, you know, is it just like this, this repetition of things that you've been praying for for the last 10 years, and you have, you have created such a prayer rut for yourself, you don't even know what you pray anymore. There's no fire, there's no passion, there's no burden, there's no, there are no tears. There's no sense of, God, you have to do this. God, you have to do this. I'm living in these days, God, and I want to see a work of your spirit. I can't live without it. 
And so, Father, please, I'm pleading with you. There are tears coming from my eyes because my heart is broken over the condition of the lost people around me. And God, I'm going to bring them to you in prayer. I'm going to bring them by name in prayer. God, I'm going to lay them at your feet. I'm going to commit them into your heart. And I'm going to continue to pray until I see the answer in my life. You know, I didn't share this in the first service, but George Mueller was an amazing man of prayer. If you want to read a biography that will stoke your dead prayer life, read his biography. There's a ton of them. But there were five people that he was praying for over the course of his life. He prayed for more. I mean, really, there's so much I could say, but I'm already over time. So, all right, well, listen. You know, the whole idea of the orphanage taking care of kids who didn't have a parent really originated through George Mueller. And he started this massive uh, system of orphanages beginning in London, England. And, you know, he, he, he didn't have any resources. He had no network. He would have all these kids gathered together. It would be early in the morning. And he had no idea how it was that he was going to have breakfast provided for these hundreds of kids. And so he would pray, God, you know, I don't have breakfast for these kids. We're going to pray together, guys. God provide. And so, you know, like there are stories of the milk cart breaking down in front of the orphanage. And then the grocer having his heart stirred and bringing bags and bags of groceries and God providing in supernatural ways. You know, there were five people that he was praying for. Four got saved during his life, and the fifth one was saved at his memorial service. And I'm just, look, I, I'm just saying all of that to say that how much do we miss out on because we're not burdened, we're not passionate, you know, especially in our, in our culture. Like, you know, this is how we are. We're blessed. We're blessed. Hey, God, we're good to go. You know, we're all set. We've got the American dream, right? We've got the American dream. We're pretty satisfied until, you know, there's supply chain issues. And then what do we struggle with? And I'm not minimizing all of our issues to this. Don't get me wrong today, but it's like, you know what, God? I wanted that iPhone, and it's on back order now, you know? God, I wanted to buy that car, but, you know, there's a problem with the manufacturing of chips, and I can't believe I have to wait for my car, you know, we're walking through line at TJ Maxx uh, two days ago, and we all, uh, when we go, when, when I'm with Rachel, there's a refrigerator there. We always pull a Diet Coke out, and there were like, there was nothing in the refrigerator. And I'm thinking, what has become of America? <laughs> what has become? You know, oh, look, all I'm, all I'm saying is, you know, we go to the store and it's like, well, where's the lettuce and, and, and where's the toilet paper and where, how about you go to the third world with me? Like, come, come with me to the third world, and it'll change your whole perspective. I'm encouraging us today that we need to have a heart that really cares about what matters to God, and we need to be tenacious, and we need to be pushy because God wants that, and we need to be on fire, and we need to be humble, and we need to be humble. We don't just storm in to the throne room and demand things from God. You know, this, the, the word of faith movement has really messed prayer up in so many ways. One way it's messed it up is it's gotten us out of alignment with what we ought to be praying for. But it also has made God subservient to us. You know, where, where it's like, oh, no, you can just go in and you can boss God around. And he, he just has to do what you say. Wait a minute. He is God. You are not. Like, we can be pushy, and we can be tenacious, and we can be persistent, but we do it in a humble way. 
like Abraham did. You know, God, you know, I'm going to say one more thing, but I'm just dust and ashes, and who am I to speak to the Lord? I don't think that was tongue-in-cheek. I don't think it was tongue-in-cheek. I think he knew who he was standing before, and we need to know that as well. James chapter 5, verse 16, this is how James says it. By the way, James was the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and his nickname was Old Camel Knees. Old camel knees, because he was on his knees so much in prayer, he had built up huge calluses on his knees. And so he's encouraging God's people to pray. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James is just saying, He's saying this, listen, when you pray according to the will of God, according to his nature and for his glory, and you pray, pray with some fervency, right? That word means to pray in a way where you're like water coming to a boil. You're, there's, a, there's, a, there's an overflow in your life, and you're walking in righteousness. God will do things just like he did in Elijah's life, because Elijah was no different than you and me. We need to be pushy but humble. The final thing today, thank you so much for your patience, is this. I want to just encourage us to blow up our boxes. Blow up the box. Blow up the box. You know, as you look at Abraham's life, this is new territory for him. He's never prayed like this, as far as we know. He's never interceded like this, as far as we know. And so let me just say to us today, don't be satisfied with your prayer experience. Don't be satisfied, because God always wants to grow it. Don't be in a place where it's like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with the way it is. Because there's not a single person in this room or watching online that has arrived to the place of perfection in prayer. There's not one of us. And the last thing that you and I want to be is stagnant. When we lived in New England, uh, there was water everywhere. It's the, literally the opposite of Las Vegas, okay? But there's water everywhere, and there are, there are standing ponds. And during the, the spring... In particular, you know, the standing ponds begin to kind of ferment. And there are times where you roll down your window, and like we're driving home, and it literally smells like we're living in a dirty aquarium. Do you know that smell? It's like a miserable smell. And it, it smells like that because the water's stagnant. The water's not moving. On the other hand, when we would go to a stream or go to a river because there was a flow, because the water was moving, it was refreshing. It was a sense of vibrance. You know, it was invigorating. Some of us, our prayer life has become like a stinky pond. Like it's, it's all contained in this rote, this ritualistic expression to God that we say over and over again to the extent where we don't even know what we're praying. We don't even know what we're saying and our heart isn't even in it. We've got this little thing that we, call, that we call prayer, and we've contained it. We have these boundaries that we place on it. And there are all sorts of excuses that we have for these boundaries. Well, listen, Pastor, you know, I'm just too busy. Really? Really? Well, let me tell you why your life sucks. Because you're too busy to pray. That's why your life sucks, okay? So, wake up. Or, hey, you know what, you know what Pastor? I'm the breadwinner. I'm the man. I leave that stuff to my wife. Really? Really? Well, that's, that's why you're not leading your family the way that your family is supposed to be led. There, there needs to be this flow of prayer, this new thing that God is doing in your life. You need to be consistently, and I need to be consistently, breaking out of the boundaries that we set. And I'm not saying that we always intentionally set them. It happens. It happens in life. 
You know, we kind of take our hand off the wheel of prayer, and pretty soon we find ourselves like an old wineskin. And God is saying, you know what, I want to do a new work. And I want to do a new work through you. But I want to do a new work in you. And yet you've come to this place of stagnancy where I can't even do what I need to do in your life. You need to be dipped in the oil of the Spirit. You need to have the renewing work of the Spirit in your heart first. Those areas where we've just become accustomed and where we've settled in prayer, we need to break beyond that. And sometimes you know what it takes? It takes a radical request. It takes, you know, you're, you're in the scripture, you know who God is, there's a, a fire in your heart, and you're going to ask for some stuff that's, that's pretty crazy. And you know what? God might do it. But I'm telling you today that in prayer, you'll find the freedom from sin, you'll fi- find freedom from spiritual apathy, you'll find freedom from patterns of anger in your life. You will find freedom from toxic cycles that you might be living with. Those cycles that that happen over and over and over again that you can't break, God can. And it starts in prayer. Now listen, the fact is, I say all of this, and I don't know how many of you are going to take it seriously. I just don't. I mean, it's not really my responsibility, but I don't know how many of you are going to say, you know what, Pastor, you're right. You're right. I know this. And this is, in a way, it's a little embarrassing because it's, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. But I want to be that one. I want to be that one. Even if nobody else in this room takes this seriously, I want to be the person that does. I want to experience God in a new way. I want to lean into prayer. I want to learn what it means to establish it in heaven first. I want to be that person that is praying in confidence because I'm walking with Jesus every single day. I know who he is. I know what he wants. I want his glory above all things. I want to be tenacious. I want to be tenacious in prayer. I want to have a fire. I want to have a burden. I want my my boundaries to be expanded. And you know, all of that starts with a heart that's willing. And that happens in your life and in my life when we pray. Know, and say, God, do that. Do that here. Do that in me. That is the prayer that God answers. And Father, we're thankful. We're thankful today that we have this. And I, I do sense in some way, I know I can say this for all of us, we don't want to get to heaven and see the life that we could have had because we didn't take this seriously. It is true that when we really have you in prayer, everything else, God, everything else will be handled. And so help us to really bear this in our hearts that the one thing that we will not live without this year is a vibrant prayer relationship with you. Today, as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, just two simple things today. The first one is this. You know, I'm I'm talking about a relationship with God and maybe today, you don't have that. You don't have that. And you want it. I say to you today, it begins when you pray and you confess to God that you've been on the wrong track in unbelief and in lifestyle. You can have that when you turn away from those things and turn to Jesus and trust in him and, and say to the Father in prayer, God, I believe in your Son. I believe in his sacrifice for me and his resurrection. 
What does God do? God pulls you into his family and he gives you a new heart and he gives you so many other things. Today, if you need to take that step of faith, I wanna pray for you this morning. Would you raise your hand today? Just slip your hand up so I can see who you are. You would say, Pastor, that's me. I see your hands in the back. Thank you so much. And right here in the center. Anybody else? Back on my right. Thank you. Over here on my left. Thank you. All right. I'm going to lead you all in prayer first. And then I have one more thing. And so today, let me just pray for you. And I just want to encourage you to follow me in a prayer. Father, thank you for these today. Bless them as they take a step of faith now and pray to you. Just follow me in this prayer today if you raised your hand. You can pray this out loud or pray it in your own heart. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to me, for your love for me. Today I give myself to you. I trust in Jesus, your son, believing that he died for me and that he rose again. I receive your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And today as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, maybe for those of you who are Christians, you know there's a challenge today that has just been laid out with respect to prayer. And so um, I'd like to pray for you today if God is really stirring your heart to take a step forward and to really experience his power and intimacy through prayer. I want you to raise your hand today. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Let's all stand together. And Father, we're thankful today, God, that you're present with us. And God, may your Holy Spirit, I will pray this for us, God, may your Holy Spirit get a hold completely of our hearts. Father, that there would be a fire that would be birthed, that you, God, would teach us how to settle things in heaven with tenacity and humility and respect and honor for you. God, we pray that you would expand our territory, that you would break the boundaries that we have set. And this year, God, not only would we have your heart because we're praying, but God, we would see your heart manifested through our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.